All right, so we're going to you in our Bible study in Psalms. So we have come to Psalm number 72. Start with our summary. Psalm 72, prays for God's kingdom to come to the earth through the reign of his king. Go over that one more time. Psalm 72, prays for God's kingdom to come to the earth through the reign of his king. Simple outline for the psalm being two parts, verses 1 to 11. Prayer for worldwide dominion. Verses 12 to 20. Prayer for justice and prosperity. I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 11. Prayer for worldwide dominion, verses 12 to 20. Prayer for justice and prosperity. Okay, so we'll go to our observation. Psalm 72 was most likely written by Solomon. The superscription, a psalm for Solomon, um, there at the beginning. The superscription is one of the most debated um, of the Psalms. It's obviously quite minimal, and it, it could have a few possible meanings. In other words, it could mean um, of Solomon, by Solomon, for Solomon, to Solomon, about Solomon. Um, so you could pretty much run through quite a number of prepositions there um, of what it could mean. And there's a lot of different ideas about the Psalm. Um, Some think that it was written by David, but written for Solomon. Um, Some think that it was David's psalm, but that it was written down by Solomon. Um, Others suppose that Solomon wrote it or that it was written by an unnamed author and it was really written about Solomon. So there's a lot of different ideas about it. Um, Through my study, I have come to the conclusion that Solomon did write the psalm. And just a quick explanation of of why I believe that. Um, It does share a number of connections with Solomon's prayer for wisdom. That's in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses um, 6 to 15. It does share a number of connections um, with that prayer. It also shares the foremost thoughts that were on David's heart as he lay dying, and that was the fulfillment of God's covenant with David through David's son, and this agrees with the ending verse of the psalm. We'll talk about that a little more when we get to it. So the concern in the psalm is not Solomon's reign so much as it is the future reign of David's son, and that is very much like David's concern in other psalms, not so much his own reign as that of the reign of his promised son to come after him. Solomon also uses some of David's words to express his own prayers here, which is not uncommon. Um, So this, if indeed this was written by Solomon, um, it would make 
the first of two Psalms that have been written by Solomon. So Psalm 127 would be the only other one. Now, if indeed this has been written by Solomon, it would make the occasion being the beginning of Solomon's reign, not any other more specific occasion than that, but just the beginning of Solomon's reign. And it could have been written, in fact, in response to God's answer to Solomon's prayer for wisdom that we read about in 1 Kings chapter 3. There are no musical directions that are given um, in this psalm. So to categorize this psalm, we would categorize it as a kingly or a royal psalm. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. And then from there on out, it's all about the king um, throughout this psalm. So it is definitely a royal psalm. Uh, It's a psalm that's about the reign of the Messianic Davidic king. Um, Interestingly, it's a psalm that's not quoted in the New Testament. Being a messianic psalm as it is, then it's obviously going to be prophetic predictive. So it is looking forward um, to a future fulfillment. It's envisioning a time of worldwide peace and prosperity centered around the reigning king. And as great as Solomon's reign was, and as much as Israel prospered during Solomon's reign, he still did not come close Um, the fulfilling, the reign that is described in Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is the final psalm of the book two collection of the psalms. And obviously it shares many connections with the other kingly psalms that have preceded it, whether in book one or book two. Um, We see these themes of worldwide dominion and praise for the king, universal defeat of the enemies, unparalleled prosperity and peace, and a prevalence of justice um, upon the earth. So a lot of these themes are common in the kingly Psalms, and it certainly shares that. This Psalm also um, is at the end of book two. It's after this last David group of Psalms, and it shares some connections, obviously, with Those Psalms, Psalms 51 to 71, is that David group. Um, And you could look at Psalm 72 as being that great um, culmination and fulfillment of David's prayers. Like all uh, all these David Psalms that we've been looking at here in book two have all been pointing to and, and sort of building to and leading to this great fulfillment, uh, the vision that we see in Psalm 72. And for that matter, it's also going to connect with the Korahite Psalms that began book two um, in a very similar way as it does to the, because the David Psalms mirror the Korahite Psalms. And we've talked about all those things as we've gone along. Um, The poetic feature uh, of Psalm 72, the structure of the Psalm is in three prayers, um, or I guess you could look at it as one prayer with three requests, but it is sort of structured that way. Um, There's a prayer for um, justice and peace and prosperity on the earth that primarily comes out in verses 1 to 7. There's a prayer for the reign of the king to be covering all of the earth in verses 8 to 14. And then there's a prayer for this this blessed reign to be everlasting, and that's in verses 15 to 20 to the end of the psalm. There's quite a bit of imagery in the psalm. It's um, not... um, uh, extravagant sort of imagery, but we have imagery of abundance through fertility and fresh rains on the earth, the earth bringing forth abundantly and innumerable blades of grass and all these kind of things. 
Um, we have imagery of the conquering of enemies um, through the licking of dust and the bowing and such. We, we have some repetition in this psalm, certain words and, and themes that uh, are repeated, and particularly those pertaining to justice and prosperity um, throughout this psalm. All right, so we want to work our way through this psalm. It has 20 verses, so a little on the longer side, but we'll go ahead and read through it. Give the king thy judgments, O God, thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his day shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isle shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains, the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be, he, be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. So verses 1 to 5 open up this psalm with this prayer for justice. And we see the king and the king's son mentioned here, obviously the king and the king's son being David and Solomon in, um, in the immediate setting of the psalm. And the focus, you'll notice, remains on the king's son, and it refers to him hereafter with a personal pronoun. So this is the only mention of the king and the king's son in the psalm. Later, we have mentions of various kings of the earth, but they're under the he, and that he that's being referred to being the king's son who is reigning as king over the earth. Now, the judgments that are referred to, uh, that refers to a judicial sentence. So something like a, a judge might be giving a sentence in a case or something um, in a courtroom type of language. We've seen that sort of thing before. Uh, and the implication here is that of, of the judgments or the judicial sentences being just, being right. Um, righteousness means equity, and, and so it means there will, there's, let there be a just judgment for all. Now, the result of God's giving in verse 1 means that God's people or the nation of Israel, the, um, his Ami, um, and his poor will receive justice. 
And this was the concern of Solomon's prayer. So when you look at Solomon's prayer for wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6 to 15, you notice that you know, God comes to him in a, in a dream by night and asks him, you, know, you can ask for whatever you want. And Solomon essentially says, um, this is a great, this is a large nation. This is an innumerable nation of people. And uh, I'm, I'm just young and I, I don't have the wisdom to be able to judge them and to lead them properly. And he's concerned about justice among the people. And of course, he was granted that wisdom and a lot of other things besides. The word for peace that is used here, it is the Hebrew term shalom. Um, and it, it means it's a much, much fuller term than just peace as in um, the absence of conflict. It is a term that really refers to a complete welfare and a complete well-being. So it's describing a condition of health and of wholeness, of, of healing. And, and it does include also the ideas of safety and, and security. The mountains and the hills that are referenced, um, the very poetic language, bringing, bringing peace um, to the people, bringing this wholeness to the people. In other words, the image means that th- they're producing ab- abundantly. Um, the mountains um, are typically uh, places that would be more barren, not necessarily as productive as um, fertile you know, farmland that might be in the fields or in the, in the plains. The poor and the needy are vulnerable, and they are easily victimized, obviously. They represent those that are in covenant with God. We've talked about that as we have um, worked our way through the Psalms. We can see that theology developed in the law as well as the prophets and also in the wisdom writings, um, which is where we are. So he mentions the breaking in pieces or the crushing of their oppressors. And so this sort of a reference is a vindicating judgment. Um, we've seen this prayed for in the laments. Um, but it's also the justice of the promised anointed son king in Psalm 2 and verse number 9. He's going, to, he's going to break his enemies in pieces. He's going to rule over them with a rod of iron. Uh, and in verse 5, we have this reference then to the sun and the moon. And the sun and the moon will be each repeated in this psalm as well. And so the, the reference here means that, that the king will be feared enduringly because of his judgments. In other words, as long as the sun and the moon stay in the sky, in other, it, it's, a, it's an expression of surety. It's an expression of longevity. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like saying forever. Um, and in fact, you'll find reference to the sun and moon and reference to God's covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 and 36, and in chapter 33, verses 19 to 26, where essentially God says that as long as the, as the sun and the moon don't fail, as long as they are in their proper place, um, my covenant will not fail. And, and he says, if, 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 you can, if you can break my covenant with the day and the night, meaning the sun and the moon, uh, the, the, morning, the, you know, the day and the night um, that was established from, from the creation, if you can break that, so if the sun doesn't come up, you know, the, the moon doesn't, um, doesn't reflect the sun's light, if, if this fails, then will my people fail um, to, uh, in, you know, inherit and inhabit their land. So it's the same, same sort of reference. Um, it will, it, it, explain, it uh, expresses uh, surety that this is going to come to pass and the, length, and the longevity of it. All right, so the verses 6 to 7 then 
give us this imagery of the prosperity of his reign. So the, the king is pictured here as a refreshing reign. So the, the king's coming to the earth and the king's coming to his people of Israel. Um, the kingdom coming to them, it's like a refreshing rain that falls upon the earth and waters the earth and causes it to bring forth abundantly. And obviously, um, being situated where, where we are with plenty of, of fields and plenty of, of farming, um, we are very concerned. And you, you, notice, you notice a difference in different parts of the country. I've, I've actually lived in a few different places, lived in the, in the south, obviously born in Appalachian Mountains, not much farming there. Um, and in the South, we were, you know, surrounded by cornfields, a lot of agriculture, a lot of commercial farming, much like it, like it is here. And yeah, I just noticed that in different places in the country, you notice people are much more attuned to how much rain that we have received. Like West Virginia, yeah, we, we, you hear about it. I mean, some be somewhat concerned about it, but not near as much when you're so close to, to, you know, so much widespread farming. So this is the, the picture of the king. That's what he's like. He's like that refreshing rain that comes to the earth and waters the earth well so that the, the earth brings forth abundantly. And it, and it makes a difference. You know, it makes a difference how much rain that you get, obviously, um, especially when it relates to, to farming and agriculture. Now, the, But this image, though, this image of the king being like this refreshing rain upon the mown grass and showering, watering the earth, it also recalls David's last words in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verses 2 to 4 when David was envisioning the king who would fulfill his covenant. It uses this exact same imagery that, he, that it would be like the water on, on the earth and the earth bringing forth abundantly. In verse 7, he refers to flourishing, and, and flourishing it would be another um, imagery that is used. It's, it's a word picture, you know, because... The word flourish literally means to bloom or to blossom. And so people don't bloom and blossom necessarily, except for metaphorically. Um, but it recalls the imagery of Psalm 1 and verse number 3, uh, when the righteous are like the tree that's planted by the rivers of water and bringing forth fruit in his, free, in his season. And it's also repeated later about the righteous in Psalm 92, verses 7, 12, and 13. Another reference to the moon, and it's, it's again a poetic expression of longevity, um, even pointing to everlasting forevermore. In verses 8 to 11, we see the rain, um, this rain of this king that waters the earth well, but it extends to all the earth. It extends to the ends of the earth. Now, the word for dominion appears four times in the Psalms. It's not a real frequent word in the Psalms, but every time that it's used, it's always in connection with the Messianic kingdom. Uh, Psalm 49, verse 14, and Psalm 68, verse 27 are psalms we've already seen, both of those being in book two, one in the Korite group, one in the uh, David group, here again in 72.8. It's used one more time, that's in Psalm 110 and verse number two. Psalm 110, a famous, um, well-known, most quoted psalm in the, in the New Testament uh, pertaining to the Messianic reign. And we have here in in this verse, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river into the ends of the earth. And what you actually have here is you've got a poetic recasting of the promise to Israel to have dominion over the land of Canaan, as it was given in Exodus chapter 23 and verse number 31. So it's very similar, but it's, but it's much more poetically expressed here. And not only that, it's also expanded. So it's not just Canaan. It's not just the, the land of promise, the land of Israel, but this is extended to the ends of the earth as well, not limited to Canaan. So 
Um, this extension of the rain to the ends of the earth, uh, we saw that in Psalm 2 and verse number 8. We've also seen it in Psalm 22, another Messianic Psalm in verse 27. We saw it in the David group in Psalm 59 and verse 13 in Psalm 67 and verse 7. This speaking of the extents of that Messianic rain going to the ends of the earth. This um, here in verse 8 is also echoed in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 10 which is a prophecy about the peaceful reign of the Messiah to come in the future. Now, in verse 9, we have reference to the wilderness or to the desert. That's a place uh, where there are scattered peoples, um, but, but they shall not escape his reign. In other words, they won't be overlooked. There won't be uh, this. We could also say, in, in a sense, it's, it's like saying there won't be any place to hide. There won't be any overlooked people in his reign. They will all be subjected to him, and he says they will lick the dust. The bowing and the licking of the dust is imagery that speaks of conquest and it speaks of submission, and we've seen that theme emerge in the psalm. So early in Psalm 18 and verse 47, and then here in book 2, Psalm 47 and verse 3, David Psalms, Psalm 58 verse 10, uh, Psalm 68 and verse number 23. We will see it again, Psalm 110 and verse 1, uh, we see it outside the Psalms in places like Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 1 to 6. So stated in a number of different ways, but the idea of, of being under your feet or being at your feet, um, being subject, being conquered. Verse number 10, we have references, uh, geographic references. We have Tarshish, um, we have the Isles, we have Sheba and Seba. And these relate to... Um, near, near to far distances. So it's sort of like saying he's going to have, he's going to reign from near to far. Everything from from here to to there. Um, Tarshish is most likely would be a reference to what we would know modern day as Spain. Um, the Isles is a reference to the coasts, most likely the coasts of the Mediterranean. Um, Sheba is uh, in southern Arabia, and uh, Seba is in northern Africa. So. You can see this; these are geographic references that are sort of circumscribing the extents of the of the known world um, to them in the time. Um, the bringing of gifts uh, by kings of the earth indicates obviously their subjection, and it indicates their honor being paid um, to the king who is in Zion. Uh, though Zion is not mentioned in this psalm, um, and we've also seen reference to this before in Psalm forty-five and verse number twelve. In verse 11, we see the kings falling down before him, the nations serving him. He will be the king of kings. Uh, we see that being literally described, though that language is not used here. It is used in other places. Uh, the word for serve means to work for. Um, in fact, it can even, it can even mean um, sort of a, a bondage or, or slavery in that sense. Um, and this, but it's what the nations are exhorted to in Psalm 2 and verse number 11, to serve um, this king. Verses 12 to 14 highlight the justice of his reign. So we go from the image, imagery of wealth. We have the gold of the nations, these rich gifts that are being brought to the king. Um, we go from the imagery of wealth to that of poverty. And so the poor and needy, um, they're not forgotten. They're not outcast. They're, they're not downtrodden. Um, it says here, in fact, that he will deliver them. He'll spare them. He'll save them. He'll redeem them. Um, and we see deceit and violence are um, references to fraud and to cruelty. 
um, against them. In other words, we might say being oppressed and extorted. Um, but their blood or their life will be precious, he says, or valuable, meaning that the king will guard it with the utmost care. Um, so it, one thing that, that we see here is that in, in his kingdom and in his millennial kingdom or messianic kingdom, is his future kingdom, um, there, there will be differences. In other words, um, we sometimes think that the idea of, of justice means and, and a unified equality across the board. Everybody has the same thing. You know, everybody has the same color of clothes and the same number of, of bowls and, and forks and whatever. Um, it actually doesn't, it doesn't mean that, you know, there will, there will be difference. There will be um, those who uh, fare better and, and more um, in that kingdom. It'll, it will be prosperous. It will be abundant. But he will take care. There will not be any oppression of of those that um, have less and, and of that sort of thing. And we might say more about that in just uh, just a little bit. Uh, verses fifteen to seventeen. Then we now get to the long length of his reign. Um, the implication of verse fifteen is that he shall live forever. He shall remain living. He shall stay alive, um, as the word indicates. And Obviously, uh, you know it's it was a common um, saying to say of a, of kings in antiquity. You know, may he live forever, um, something along that line. And though that was a very common saying or well wish for a king that he might live forever, it's only truly fulfilled in one king, and that is in Jesus Christ, the the Messiah. Um, Verse 16, we have further imagery of prosperity and abundance, um, and the nations are responding to the king with their wealth. In other words, we have a picture here of gratitude. So the nations of the earth are going to be prospering during um, Christ's reign upon this earth, and their gratitude will be you know, returned. And, and uh, we have pictures at different times in the prophets and even in the in the New Testament of, of Jerusalem and just just the flowing in of the wealth of the nations in paying honor to the king. Verse 17 um, speaks of his, his name, how to endure forever. In other words, his name will be great. And when you think about it, this is a fulfillment of the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 2, that he, he would be made great, of him would be a great nation. Uh, and that promise is something that's also given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, a part of the covenant that God made with him, that he would be made great. Um, and he was a blessing to all the families of the earth here, obviously, and uh, fulfilling of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, chapter 22, verse 18, chapter 26, and verse number 4. So verses 18 to 20 then give us the concluding praise of the psalm. So Israel's um, restoration is envisioned. Um, the son of David be reigning over them. Um, and, and this is what the God of Israel has done in his wondrous works. This is what he has brought about. Um, verse 19, praising his name, uh, referring to praising all of his glory, all of his, all of his being and attributes. Um, but also a praising of his name is a praising of his covenant faithfulness because God has said repeatedly, 
that he will keep his promises for the sake of his name. And so as, these, as this fulfillment is envisioned here, his name will be praised because he has, he has kept his promises. He hasn't um, profaned or defiled his name um, by being unfaithful to his word. Glory here is the Hebrew term kavod. Um, we have paid attention to that. We've pointed it out in numerous times. It's a word that is, is also often associated with kingship and the kingdom reign on the earth. We've seen it numerous times in the Psalms um, here recently. Uh, Psalm 57 and verses 5, 8, and 11. Psalm 62 and verse 7. Psalm 63 and verse 2. Psalm 66 and verse 2. Uh, first mentioned back in Psalm 3 and verse number 3. And we've sort of been uh, tracking it along the way as, as we have moved. But his glory here is said, his, his reign, it feels, it, it covers the earth. And in verse 20, we have is um, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, there are... Um, there are some other Psalms that David wrote that are still yet to come in the Psalms. Um, the bulk of them have been here in book one and book number two. But really when we read this, when we read this line and we think about David's last words, so 2 Samuel chapter 23, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, these are David's um, words. Uh, started there with verse 1. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. And then he goes on to talk about how the sons of Belial um, will be um, defeated. So those are... David's last words. In, in, in a way, you could say David's dying wish is for the fulfillment of this covenant God has made with him. And David acknowledges his own sinfulness and weakness. He could not fulfill this covenant himself. And Solomon cannot fulfill this covenant. In fact, did not fulfill this covenant himself. So as we, we read verse 20, the prayers of, the, of David, the son of Jesse, are ended we realize that this psalm is reflective of what was on David's heart as he passed from this life. And he went, as uh, it said in the book of Acts, you know, he, he fell on sleep and, and was laid to rest with his fathers. This, this is what was on his heart as he's passing from this life. And that is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with him. And he knew it wasn't him. And he knew it wasn't Solomon. He knew it was his son to come. And so this prayer then certainly reflects the end of David's prayers. This is his final prayer. This is his final goal. All right, so let's go to interpretation. Psalm 72 teaches various attributes of God. Obviously, um, anytime that you're dealing with prophetic, predictive, and messianic psalms and that sort of thing, 
you're always going to be seeing God's sovereignty because it's God's sovereignty that brings about um, everything that is described in this psalm. And that's what we see reflected even in the praise at the end of it. Blessed, um, uh, let's see, verse 18, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. In other words, this, this is what God has done. Uh, it's almost like a prayer of amazement. This is this is what God has done. Everything that's described in this psalm, we also see God's concern for justice, a concern for righteous equity. We see God's concern um, and deliverance of those who trust in them. He doesn't forsake them. He doesn't abandon them. We see God's. Uh, we see how precious that those who trust in God are, no matter how weak and despised they are in the world. So you have this repetition of the poor and needy um, throughout this psalm. And you've got all these great, grand things being spoken of. I mean, this great weight of gold from Sheba being being brought to um, the king in that time. But nevertheless, it says their blood is precious to him. Those that trust in him, they're more, more precious than all the gold um, that, you know, in, in the world, they are precious to him. We also see um, the abundance of blessings to those who trust him. In other words, what, what it is that God does for those, how he brings peace, he brings shalom truly to this, to this earth, and it has never known it before. We also see the Messianic hope of Psalm 72, and it's particularly seen in this psalm through Solomon as a type of the son of David to come and to fulfill all this vision. So this, this psalm does track a pretty long way with a lot of Solomon's reign. There's a number of connections here, and particularly if you read 1 Kings chapters 3 through 11 um, in connection with this psalm, you're, you're going to see a number of connections. Solomon prayed for wisdom that he might rule in just judgment and righteousness. And that's obviously a major concern in this psalm. His wisdom and, ju and justice were displayed in saving the child when the two women were disputing over him. And his kingdom flourished, and it led to prosperity and many tributary nations. Um, and his greatness was illustrated in the fact of the Queen of Sheba um, visiting him and bringing him all these gifts and all these golds and, and praising him the way that she did. And all these things are in 1 Kings chapter 3 um, to 11. You see all these, all these markers, um, all these things that are, that are brought out in this particular psalm that were said of his kingdom, just not on this scale, just not to this extent as what it's said here in Psalm 72. So Solomon was not that son of David. He was a son of David, but he was not that son of David. Solomon fell into idolatry and he certainly did not fulfill everything envisioned in this psalm. But you recall how in Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 42, Jesus even referred to Solomon and he referred to the queen of Sheba and he referred to her coming and bringing him things and, and coming to hear his wisdom and all that and stated at the end of that verse that the greater Solomon is here, meaning Jesus himself. He's the greater David. He's the greater Solomon. Now, also the mention of the poor and needy um, repeatedly in this psalm also points to one of the reasons why there must be a millennial kingdom on this earth. 
because you read this time, and as great as this time is, it's still obviously some sort of an intermediate time between this present time and what is said of the eternal ages. There's still a difference there. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a time when you've got a number of prophecies in the Bible that there's just no place for them to go if there's not an actual literal millennial kingdom upon this earth when the curse is lifted and such. So this psalm obviously contributes to that. And, uh, and if you're interested in that, hang in there. Um, because in our study of Bible doctrine, we'll eventually get to, the, to that eschatology segment. It comes at the end, but we'll eventually get there, and we're going to talk about a lot of those kind of things. So anyway, um, let's go to application. I'm just going to have one primary application. Understanding Psalm 72 helps us understand to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. So if you think about the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, after this manner, therefore, pray you, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This kingdom that we read about in Psalm 72 is the kingdom Jesus taught us to pray for. And so when we understand that and we read this sort of a psalm, we see on the one hand that this is our hope and expectation. The Bible tells us plainly, pray for your leaders. Pray for your elected and appointed officials. Pray for those in positions of authority within government. And do so that you may be able to lead a peaceable life and, 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 and all of that. Don't pray for those leaders that they might bring in Christ's kingdom because that's not how it comes. But pray for this kingdom. That is our hope. And it's also... It's also a good way of just sort of checking ourselves. You know, what are, what are the concerns of our prayers? How concerned, what sort of a place does that coming kingdom that Jesus specifically told us to pray for, what sort of a place does that occupy in our prayers? 